Hello and welcome to Health Matters. I am your host and horse-voiced respiratory infection sufferer, Dr. Tony Weaver. It's going to be a low and sexy show. With a respiratory infection? With a respiratory infection. You know, it gives you that mellow voice I've got. I'm going to try to make it through. This is the Hello Thanks for 2019 show. Thanks to our listeners at True Talk Internet Radio and a special radio wave to those still working folks at the MSU Ronald G. Eaglin Space Science Center. Please stay warm out there in outer space. With me from the University of Kentucky to talk about all things healthy, from the Physician Assistant Program, Assistant Professor Shelly Irving. Hi, Shelly. Hello. And also, due to an unfortunate lapse in scheduling, from the University of Kentucky to explain to you how to access us on the internet, the Executive Director of Networking and Infrastructure, Rick Phillips. Hey, Rick. Hey, Tony. You know you can get the audio of the show by going to wmky.org. That's Morton State Public Radio's website. There you'll find Health Matters and a list of the most recent shows. And in each item of the list, you will find a link to the audio. Go there, listen to the show over and over and over again. I think, what do you think, Tony, three, four times the same show? It'll make you sick, yeah. Uh, I think more than that, probably. I mean, really, I was just trying to get that low, sexy voice on the air, really. That's all I was trying to do there. struggling. Right now, you caught me with mid-cough drop. Yeah, gotcha. So, that's how you listen to the show. There is a way to interact with the show. So, jump on over to Facebook, (laughs) facebook.com slash hmradioshow. There you'll find the fan page. And there we kind of discuss health matters, talk about some things in the news or, you know, if you, you know, somebody may post question or a topic or some feedback. That's absolutely how you interact with the show and get that good, honest, two-way communication that the world's been lacking for the last 15 years. Right? No, I like that. This is very good. Lacking for the last 10 or 15. I mean, we don't know how to, we do not know how to do synchronous communication anymore. We have completely forgotten the art of talking and waiting for a response. Right? And then saying something back. I'll get back with you on that. Yeah. Yeah, I have to think about it. In that case, you waited too long, see? But I'm telling you, we have lost the art of two-way communication. But that's another whole show, maybe. You want to use two-way methods. We will respond. Unfortunately, it's probably a little bit asynchronous. You might have to wait a little bit for a response. But you will get a response. All you have to do is look us up on that fan page, Facebook.com slash HM Radio Show. Our sponsor for today's show, Colon Cancer Prevention. Let's get rolling and protect our colon. Where mm-hmm. on earth do you come up with these things? Oh, uh, listen, it's a big ad agency, you know, the whole thing. I just read what's in front of me. I have no no idea. I want to know what we're rolling. I totally believe the no idea. <laughs> That's a thing. good question. <laughs> well, uh, no fooling, we need to get tooling. This is the, the American College of Physicians uh, published some colon cancer screening guidelines. And I'm going to need a second, Tony. Okay. I know it's uh, it's not synchronous, but uh, work on it, Rick. No, this, I'm just saying that you kind of that last that little limerick you put out there I was picked a, the, a bit yeah. much. November 4th, Medscape summary of these guidelines, which were published in the Annals of Internal Medicine uh, the 1st of November. And um, they there are so many different guidelines. The American Cancer Society has decided that it might benefit you to start screening for colon cancer at age 45 because the rates of colon cancer have gone up in people in their 40s. Younger people are getting colon cancer at an earlier age, and it spreads uh, more quickly. And so they thought, well, maybe um, we should start at age 45. In Canada, flexible sigmoidoscopy every 10 years, screening uh, people ages 60 to 74, in the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, they say, well, 50 through 75, you should be screened for colon cancer, and maybe through 85 if you're especially healthy. So there are all different types of guidelines. Do we start at 45 or 50? Do we go to 75? Do we go to 85? How often do we screen and so forth? So the American College of Physicians said, well, here's what we know. You know, the best we can tell looking through this literature, this is what we know. All adults, all adults ages 55 to 75 with Average risk should be screened. Now, what they mean average risk, well, first of all, if you've had your entire colon removed or you were born without a colon, it could happen. You know, I don't know, maybe. Then you don't need to be screened for colon cancer. There are high-risk people that you need to talk with your doctor. For instance, if you have a family history, a first-degree relative, mother, father, sister, brother, with colon cancer at a young age, if you have inflammatory bowel disease, things like ulcerative colitis or something called Crohn's disease, If you have a family, there's something called a familial polyposis syndrome where you have a whole ton of polyps in your colon, or if you have, of course, a personal history of uh, cancer of the colon, then you're going to have to work that out with your doctor. These guidelines don't apply to you, 
because those are high-risk situations, inflammatory bowel disease, family history, personal history, or those polyp uh, syndromes. But if your average risk, start screening at age 50, go to age 75. How do you screen? You can do uh, what they call a FIT test, which is a fecal immunochemical test, and it either tests for DNA or it tests for blood. Uh, and this is that box that you see that uh, helps find things. Uh, they've been advertising a lot on TV. It seems to work. You do that every two years. You can get colonoscopy every 10 years, except most of the people I know, they find a polyp or something, and then they go to every three or every five or uh, some other interval. But you start off, you get it every 10 years, starting at age 50, so you go 50, 60, and 70, and you're done. Three colonoscopies in your life. And then the other possibility, you could do something called flexible sigmoidoscopy every 10 years plus the stool test. The problem is you can't get a flexible sigmoidoscopy in many places in the U.S. I will tell you, it, it is a short scope instead of a long scope. It looks at the bottom part of the colon instead of the entire colon, the sigmoid part of the colon, as we call it. Uh, but it doesn't pay very well. And so most of the people who do this type of testing, they just go ahead and do the colonoscopy. So I, I don't think that's, it's possible, but it's uh, really not going to happen much in the U.S. So it winds up being then, for most people in the U.S., colonoscopy every 10 years or the stool test every two years. That's the two things. Uh, clinicians should select it based in consultation with the patients after looking at their preferences. Please, sir, I would prefer not to have diarrhea for several days while I'm getting ready for the colonoscopy. But I do get the colonoscopy. I am now... Of my, I've finished my second of three. Uh, so if you're old, up, I am. Yeah, I'm in the home stretch in terms. You're of not cancer midlife. Screening. You're now, old. Now think about Rick. What what it means to be in the home stretch of cancer screening? What it's saying is, well, you're so old. Even if you get cancer, it probably won't matter. Boy, that's harsh. I know. I'm glad you said it. I know. That's why you know the American College of Physicians. It and that's says, where you are in life. I'm Almost. in the home stretch. I'm, I'm there. I'm working on my third colonoscopy, and it's three and done. Now, the way you could look at it is you could say, look, if you've looked three times and you haven't seen anything, you're not going to die of colon cancer. I don't know what's going to kill me. Certainly not uh, probably an enraged uh, radio co-host. But that's another show, too. <laughs> point is. and you, No, you don't have a point. I have a point. The point is, if I've had three negative colonoscopies, I'm probably not going to die of colon cancer. Okay. So good for you. Yeah. So there's that. On mm -hmm. the other hand, though, the people that have had it, some polyps and so forth, and they've been doing it every five years or every three years, and then they just shut it down at age 75. I mean, I understand that, but if you've got good genes, you're, you're looking at maybe uh, making it to age 90 or so, uh, that's 15 years without screening. I have offered some of my patients who are either fed up of the colonoscopy or, say, a person who wants to get it at age 80, maybe your insurance is not going to cover it, that's when you could do those stool tests. And I think I might, uh, if, if, if I had a kind of a, uh, a stormy course in, the, in my 50s and 60s with different uh, things showing up on colonoscopy, I don't think I'm ready to drop it at 75 if I've got, again, if I, there's nothing else going on. We don't know how to get people to 100 right now. We, there's no you know, medical plan for your health through 100. But I would think you'd have to keep looking for breast cancer and colon cancer up through your 80s if you're destined to live to 100. So... A lot of things to think about. But at any rate, we might say 10 minutes into our segment, <laughs> that's our sponsor, <laughs> Colon Cancer Prevention. Let's get rolling and protect our colon. Now, the next one is, is, this is pretty good. This woman went to a theme park to diagnose her own cancer. It's cancer. probably still cheaper than a copay for the mammogram. I don't know if yeah. you've been there lately. I mean, any of the big name ones, that's expensive. Yeah, but if you get that head of the line pass, it might cost as much as a mammogram. See, see how much you know about this? He, he doesn't even know the names of them. <laughs> Tell me the name of the pass, Mr. Knows which which one? Disney? Fast Pass. Fast Pass? Or, or did you want a Universal Studios, you know, would, would you rather have that one? Yeah. So I don't know what it is. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I do know what it is, there but was, I forgot it on the spot. I know, but there it's was an a express, look. It's, there express, was a, it's express, pass. express Pass. Express Pass. There was a look on your face, <clears throat> and I, I, I said, he doesn't know the answer to that question. Well, I don't know the one for SeaWorld. Yeah, they've got their own thing going on, yeah. I don't okay. know what's But Disney either. invented the Fast Pass. I they mean, did. That, that's the thing. All right. They Point did. is, no matter how much you pay, uh, it would be nice to get your well, – nice. It would be – getting screened for cancer at a theme park would be pretty neat. I don't know. I don't know. That you know, those are especially Disney. That's well, depends. the happiest go place on earth, and I don't think I'd want to go there and find out I got. But I yeah, cancer. did I did I go there for it or did I no, did it right. ruin my day? Uh, let me give you the, the let's give the facts, and then we'll we'll talk about the, the story because this is really interesting. 
Um, this woman, uh, her name is Ball Gill, uh, B-A-L, and I assume that's Ball, but it may be Bal. Gill, she's 41 years old. She went to the Camera Obscura World of Illusions theme park in Scotland. She went to a heat-seeking camera. And you've seen this thing. This is what uh, Alien versus Predator, you know, they, they show these heat-seeking. You can And you can see sometimes when you're looking at war footage, you can see uh, heat-outlined images of posing soldiers or civilians or whatever. She got in front of those one of those heat-seeking cancers. And she noticed she had a hot spot over her right breast, an extra hot spot there. She got a friend. They stood up. They didn't have any hot spots. Several people stood up. They didn't have any hot spots. She said, gee, I have a hot spot on my right breast. I should get that checked out. She did get it checked out, and it was cancer. She says, thankfully, really early stages. I've had two surgeries and one to go to prevent it from spreading. Three surgeries for breast cancer. That's unusual, isn't it? Yes. I don't understand Mm -hmm. that. I'm not as optimistic as she is that really early stages requires three surgeries. Well, unless she had a... You know, mastectomy or double mastectomy and then reconstruction. And, you know, she may have gone ahead and and done all that. Yeah. But she's sitting there looking at the camera and she sees this hot spot over her breast. She goes and gets it checked out and she's got cancer. And she believes at this point she's on her way to being successfully treated and, and the cancer taken care of. Although, you know, that's still to know. The FDA. Now, the rest of this article in WebMD is to try to tell you don't go to the theme park to diagnose your breast cancer. The FDA says getting a mammogram is the best way to screen for breast cancer. There is no scientific evidence to support thermography, which shows the patterns of heat and blood flow, as a substitute. That's true. I mean, I've got a woman here who found it. but um, you Well, know, it seems th- like she found it in a fairly scientific way after all was said and done. Yeah. And you could figure that the cancer may show up as being warmer tissue, but better blood flow, better blood supply than the tissue around it. Studies repeatedly show that mammography, they're recommending mammograms ages 50 to 74, average risk women who don't have, again, family history, uh, BRCA gene and so forth, at least every two years, ages 50 to 74. That's uh, currently the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendations. They point all that out, but still, this woman just stood in front of a camera at a theme park and figured out she might have a breast cancer. Well, maybe that's a testament to her, the good job we're doing, doing patient education for the, for these individuals. You know, I bet you her copay wasn't as much as to get into that place. <laughs> yeah, but insurance does not cover theme parks, I'll point out. You're talking about copays. Uh, she was pretty much on the spot for the whole bill, uh, as minuscule as it might be. And the other thing is, I will tell you, when you get a mammogram, I don't think you can get uh, a uh, snow cone. That's true. While you're getting or a, a turkey leg. Or hot wings or anything else. You can have a break, though. We're going to take a break as well. You're listening to Health Matters on Moorhead State Public Radio. For MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. The Northeast AHEC connects students to careers, professionals to communities, and communities to better health. The Northeast AHEC strives to improve the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals through community and academic educational partnerships. More information is available online at neahec.org. Hello and welcome back. This is the second fractional portion of Health Matters. I'm Rick Phillips. I'm Shelley Irving. I'm Dr. Tony Weaver. This is the Halifax Bus 2019 show. We are in the midst of the Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas season. The Halifaxmas season. It's easy for him to say, huh? The Halifaxmas season 2019. And we thought we would celebrate with basically doing our jobs <laughs> and making a radio show. Which, you know, hey, okay. 
We'll do it. We'll do it. Our sponsor for the second time, Colon Cancer Prevention. Let's get rolling and protect our colon. Reminding so, you. Wait, 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 wait. Let's get rolling. Thinking, couldn't you have found a better word? Poetic license. Probably. I thought of a lot of words. And rolling came to the And rolling was the best one you could come up with. Yep. You see them, you wrecked them. If, if, that's what, if you want something better than that, I mean, I looked at all the possibilities. You looked at all the possibilities. Absolutely. Okay. Thousands. Right. We had a brainstorming session, me and the advertising guys, and uh, they didn't show up. So okay. It's all right. Our sponsor, once again, the American College of Physicians, Colon Cancer Screening Guidance, November 4, 2019, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Adults ages 50 to 75 with average risk. That is, you do not have a family history of uh, colon cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, some type of genetic polyposis syndrome where you have a whole bunch of polyps in your colon or a personal uh, history of uh, colon cancer or polyps. If you're just an average Joe or Jane Mm -hmm. on the street, what do you do? Ages 50 to 75, you can get the stool, the immunochemical testing every two years. That is that box that you see on TV that says, I find things. That is a test for colon cancer every two years or colonoscopy every 10 years unless they find polyps. Most of my patients, uh, I do recommend the colonoscopy. Again, it's not because the science is strong, but colonoscopy does find the polyps before they turn into cancer. So essentially, colonoscopy prevents the cancer from starting, whereas the other tests are going to pick it up once it starts. I like the idea of prevention, but I understand for some people, they just don't like getting the colonoscopy. I will tell you, according to the experts, there is not high-quality evidence that colonoscopy is better. There are some tests right now, some research studies that are trying to look at this. But as of right now, any of these tests is recommended depending on your personal preferences. Or, as I mentioned, the flexible sigmoidoscopy, the uh, shorter scope and lower part of the colon every 10 years plus uh, using the stool test every two years. And you say to yourself, well, if I'm already using the stool test every two years, then the flexible sigmoidoscopy is just annoying me every 10 years by putting a scope in the rectum. It's not as big a scope, but it's still a scope. To be honest with you, um, I have elected to knock out that third option. I think you either get the scope or you get the stool test. Though That makes sense to me. And especially as you get older and you start dreading that colonoscopy, then the stool test may be the way to go. If you get that stool test every two years, that's 100 bucks, basically a year. Ten-year screening costs. I think that's 100 bucks a year. Uh, colonoscopy. Every 10 years, they said it's somewhere between $900 and $7,000. That's a nice range, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I certainly feel better about colonoscopy at $900 every 10 years than $7,000 every 10 years. They mentioned, the, of course, the, the, the CAT scanning, uh, um, CT colonography, high-dose radiation, $3,000 over 10 years. Uh, so it looks to me like, you know, the, the uh, and by the way, the um, American College of Physicians did not like and did not recommend getting the CAT scan. I, and I agree with them. Too much radiation. And if you see anything, you're back to the colonoscopy again. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's colonoscopy or it's the stool testing. That makes the most sense. Colonoscopy every 10, stool testing every two. That is our sponsor, the Colon Cancer Prevention. Let's get rolling and protect our colon. Talk to your health care provider if you are ages 50 to 75 about your options for detecting early detection of colon cancer. Now, colon cancer is the number two cancer killer among all men and women. You know, women, breast cancer is number two behind lung cancer. Men, prostate cancer is number two behind lung cancer. But if you combine everybody, then colon cancer, by being third in both groups, uh, rises to second overall. What that means is if you are a non-smoker, this is the second most likely cancer to kill you, and it is detectable at an early stage for most of colon cancers, and it is curable at an early stage. So this is not just uh, an idle endeavor. This is uh, really a life-saving thing when you think of it that way. And unfortunately, we in eastern Kentucky, particularly northeastern Kentucky, have some of the nation's highest colorectal mortality rates. So if you're out there within earshot of our radio program, please take this seriously. Talk to your health care provider. And I really like the uh, the stool every two years. That's a good option for those who have transportation issues or can't come in um, to do the test or don't have a driver for the right. colonoscopy. You pick it up, you do it at home, you mail it in. Mm-hmm. It, it is it is fairly simple, a lot simpler than, than <clears throat> getting a colonoscopy. All right, next up from the AMA Journal. This was a synopsis, and I like synopses because I don't have to read as much as reading the whole thing. 
So this is like Fair. a comic book version of the 2019 American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines on the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. Big, big words. What it means is primary prevention means if you've never had a heart attack, if you've never had a stroke, what do you need to do to protect yourself from having a heart attack or a stroke? Well, they give you their guidelines, six things, uh, according to the AMA Journal, six things that you need to know. First of all, and you may not even need to know this, a team-based approach, including physicians and other clinicians, is effective for preventing cardiovascular disease. And they mentioned that the uh, clinicians should evaluate what they call the social determinants of health. That is, when we start talking about trying to protect you from having a heart attack or stroke, we need to know um, how, how easy it is for you to access healthy food, uh, whether or not there are places you can exercise, if you're living in a house full of smokers and there's smoke everywhere, if you're caring for someone who's aged and you can't get out of the house because uh, something would happen to them, those kind of things. Because simply making a, a blanket recommendation for everybody, as we do on the radio show, doesn't work. I will tell you, when I was a uh, medical resident in Richmond, Virginia, I advised one of my clients, uh, one of my patients, I said, you should exercise more. You should try getting out and walking. And she said, doctor, do you know that a young man was killed in front of our, my project? Uh, last week. And I thought, well, I really don't know anything about what I'm talking about. It's easy for me to tell her what the literature says. The problem was I couldn't tell her what she should do because it sounds to me like walking around where she lives would be a very foolhardy thing to do. I felt bad and I learned my lesson. Number two, adults ages 40 to 75 years being evaluated for prevention should have a 10-year risk estimate before starting any type of medicine, such as blood pressure medicines, cholesterol pills, or aspirin. And that's a strong recommendation. You can do this yourself if you just Google, use the Google, and look for AHA Risk Calculator, American Heart Association Risk Calculator. Take the Google, put that in the Google box, and it will show you this risk calculator. You need your blood pressure and your cholesterol uh, numbers, and you can figure out your own 10-year risk. A lot of our discussions are based on your risk. We don't need to start medicines on people who are low risk. We do need to be very aggressive with people who are higher risk. I understand this, and I do this. The problem is they said, well, you should share that risk with the patient. A lot of my patients, it's very disturbing to find out that they have a 20 or 25% risk of having a heart attack in the next 10 years. Now, if you take a person in Kentucky who's in their upper 60s, that is almost a fact of life. Take 100 Kentuckians and try to get them through 10 years without having a heart attack, and probably, you know, 5 or 10 of them are going to have one. But depending on your blood pressure and cholesterol numbers, your risk changes, and we're supposed to share that. So you can look at it yourself. I try to calculate it on all of my patients who have high blood pressure, diabetes, and so forth when we start thinking about using medicines. Number three, adults should be counseled in healthcare visits to optimize a physically active lifestyle, and that is a strong recommendation. That is tough. I don't know where I'm at on that one. You know, without physical activity, the medicines, if you're trying to get to health with pills, you will not make it. So they keep emphasizing over and over again, diet and physical activity is absolutely the cornerstone. If you're trying to lower your cardiovascular risk, you can't do it without that. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally get it. I mean, you, why has it got to be so hard? I, how, how is it that we're created as these beings that for some, for a good portion, now I'm not going to say this is everybody, but for a good portion of the population, why is it so hard to get these two in check? Why are we not built to just do that? Well, Rick, I blame you. Yeah, you put these sure right. tantalizing screens in front of everyone with all sorts of fascinating information, cat videos. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. We didn't. We didn't. I, we did get worse. Something tells me that the weight came on at the invent of fast food and not at the invent right. of computers. Right. I can. You know. You can just reach out your hand practically, and food will fall into it. Right. Uh, and you think about uh, compare that to the way things were even. 50 years ago, certainly more than 100 years ago, you had to work for your food. You don't now. Uh, and then secondly, there's so many fun things to do from your chair. But a lot of those can be done from the treadmill, from the exercise yeah. bike. Yeah, it is. And I don't know, you know, once again, uh, I started off, obviously, uh, I, I gave you that story as early in my career. I did not know how mm -hmm. to advise people. I have, I've at least got more sensitive, but I'm not sure I'm any better at it. It is really hard to find an exercise a person can do if, say, there are coal trucks or log trucks going down their road. You cannot walk or, or bike on some of these Kentucky roads 
uh, with that kind of traffic. There are lots more places in Moorhead certainly to meet over a meal than there are to meet over a physical activity. Uh, we do, once in a blue moon, we have a 5K race or a, a fun run or a walk. But for the most part, you are on your own. Yeah, it's, it's extremely tough. I mean, you know, uh, the the whole, I think <laughs> there's this thing where if you're going to live in the urban areas, the urban areas are kind of equipped with places to do these types of things. If you're going to live in rural America, you need to be a farmer and work on the farm. I mean, I know that sounds kind of crass. I don't mean it that way. I mean, I'm just saying, I think your safest bet in rural America is just work hard because you're not going to get the exercise out on the streets or in the because we're just not built for it. These recommendations originated in, a, in an urban area. Right. And so they, they may or may not be uh, easy to apply. But they are saying you've got to talk about exercise in the doctor's office, in the, uh, um, from the physician assistant, from your nurse practitioner, from your health care provider. You've really got to talk about exercise in a serious way, not just get more. You've got to start thinking, how do I get more exercise? We have to talk talk with our patients about solutions. <clears throat> How do we find those opportunities for them to get more active uh, and be more physical? Well, you know, you've heard me say it. Where, where it starts for me is you've got to get rid of the recliner. I, I cannot think of a less <clears throat> active piece of furniture than a recliner. I mean, even if, if you're on a couch, you at least roll over. When you're in a recliner, you don't even roll over. It's the worst piece of furniture ever invented. Really? Yeah. See, I think the stand-up desk is the worst one. <clears throat> I think the stand-up desk is the worst piece of furniture ever created. Well, we I weren't understand. meant to stand up at our desks. I used mine today. Yeah, well, good for you. <laughs> yeah, she's got she's got a she's got a manual. Do you have you have a motorized yeah, stand-up desk? <laughs> I mean, I want to stand up, but let's face it, I'm not going to expend any. I really, I really that. shouldn't open this Pandora's box. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this is really great. I actually have what you one need is a motorized rick. You need something that will raise you up. You know, and not. I do. It's called down. my recliner. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, but I really think I've advised some of my patients. I, I see them. They're very overweight. They've got a lot of arthritis. They're not going to be able to walk to health. I mean, it's just simply their knees will wear out before they can achieve their goals. And I tell them, you need to get a rocking chair, a really nice, comfortable rocking chair or glider furniture. Hey, one, I, I love this. One, one of my patients, the family says, well, he won't rock, but he'll swivel. Then swivel. So, so he's home apparently just swiveling his life away now <clears throat> on his swivel chair. And I, I said, fine. But, you, you know, you think about the difference between moving in your furniture and then reclining. And, and it, it is a very, very low energy chair. I'll, I'll just tell you that. So at any rate, that's number three for my physical activity uh, lifestyle. Number four. For people with diabetes, the lifestyle changes such as improving diet and achieving exercise recommendations are crucial. That's what the American College of Physicians says, crucial. This is not in addition to taking your pills. It is not when you have time. Is If you have diabetes, you have to make these lifestyle changes, you have to lose the weight, and you have to exercise. And, and the first thing you got to do is set up your life so that will happen. And it may mean that you can't take that all-night job. It may pay a little bit more. Or you can't commute to Paducah and, and expect then that when you get back, you're going to be able to exercise. You may have to make some uh, other sacrifices. It will, it will certainly pay off in terms of happiness, but uh, you may have to give up some aspect of your life in order to be able to exercise. We need to write more prescriptions for that that people can hang up on their fridge. So the, Good old-fashioned paper prescriptions. Yeah, so that it's not just conversation yeah this, this is a this is your party treatment regimen yeah there were a, a group i think it was over in fleming county uh, a person uh, looked at uh, instead of writing an exercise prescription they said all right we want to actually to uh, we want to get to a, a we want to make a concrete suggestion so they said here's you know here are the places you could go here is this person here's the hours here's how much it costs uh, this is a list of possible ways that you can exercise now obviously you can exercise anyway including swiveling you could just swivel. If you really swiveled earnestly, earnest swiveling could burn calories. But uh, for some people, meeting up with others, uh, uh, the social aspects of it, uh, going to the, uh, the fitness center, to the local gym, uh, to organizations like that, that's the way they do it. Um, if medication is indicated for diabetes, the first one is something called metformin, the second one, we, they have gotten very specific, uh, the American Heart Association. They recommend medicines, some of these newer ones that advertise on TV, like Jardians, Farsiga, or Invacana. You see these on TV. Now, 
Remember the health matters rule. If you see it on TV, it's at least 500 bucks a month. <clears throat> and that's the problem. The metformin is dirt cheap. It's been around since the 70s. This is a very, very good diabetes medicine. Your second option for treating diabetes is really difficult. Um, it, it's either going to be expensive or it's not going to be as good for your heart as uh, those medicines. And then finally, uh, number five, all adults should be assessed at, assessed at every health care visit for tobacco use. And it should be recorded as a vital sign that either changes or doesn't change. I will tell you, my patients are always down to half a pack. So, so when does it not when, when a patient's quit, when do you quit? When do they need to quit telling you? Um, you know, if you look at the, uh, if you look at, for instance, screening for lung cancer, uh, we continue to screen for 15 years after they quit. Okay. So I think 15 years is a good number. I try to record the date that they quit, hope, hoping that that's accurate, uh, because I'm going to need to to know that. Uh, and and they gradually they adopt many of the uh, risk uh, of a non-smoker as the years pass. So so I may have I may have recently seen a physician and was asked, "Do I smoke?" And I said, "No." They said, "Have you ever smoked?" And I said, "Yes, I quit in 1989." And they said, "How many packs did you smoke?" And I said, "That was 30 years ago. I don't even remember that." I have no idea. And I just thought, then it kind of dawned on me, at what point do I have to quit asking? At what point do I, do I get to, when, when do I get somebody to pat me on the back for quitting smoking and being off of them for 30 so, years? Good job, Rick. Yeah. So, <laughs> so when does Rick go from an ex-smoker to an essentially non-smoker? Exactly. You know, like, do you smoke? Essentially, no. I mean, um, maybe. Yeah, but it's, it's a... It's a gray area. It is. I understand what you're saying. Well, 15 years, I think, in terms of, of, like I said, lung cancer screening. Now, you know, you can't unage, you can't take that away from your lungs, but uh, a lot of your risk. I've done really much worse to my lungs since then, probably. <laughs> I, well, I mean, honestly, uh, yeah, it's quite From being possible. overweight, I mean, just yeah. to show. Um, all right. So then the final thing, number six. Now, pay attention to this. Low-dose aspirin should not, should not, should not be administered on a routine basis among adults ages 70 years or older to prevent heart attacks and strokes. Now, again, we're talking about primary prevention. If you've had a heart attack, you've had a stroke, we need that aspirin to protect you from a second one. But if you are simply a person and you're trying to live the best you can, you've never had a heart attack or stroke, you should not be taking aspirin to prevent one because the risk of bleeding outweighs the benefits. I feel exhausted. I I, I you guys, you know, I, I mean, I start talking, and then we, we just drag it through the mud. Sorry. It's helpful stuff. Shelly it's helpful she, information. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate that. We, we, will, we will dwell on it. We will. We'll go come back with our third and final fractional portion. You're listening to Health Matters on Moorhead State Public Radio. MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. The Northeast AHEC connects students to careers, professionals to communities, and communities to better health. The Northeast AHEC strives to improve the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals through community and academic educational partnerships. More information is available online at neahec.org. Hello and welcome back. This is the third and final fractional portion of Health Matters. I'm Rick Phillips. I'm Shelley Irving. I'm Dr. Tony Weaver. This is the Hallow Thanks List 2019 show. 
this is where we celebrate that amazing holiday season where people basically just go nuts. They spend most of the money they spend. They dress up as monsters and watch football and buy each other gifts. What a great time to be alive. They eat turkey. You left that out. Oh, yeah. They eat, they eat lots of turkey more than the rest of the year. Our sponsor for the final time, Colon Cancer Prevention. Let's get rolling and protect our colon. Very quickly, the American College of Physicians says if you are average risk, you don't have the polyposis syndrome, the family history of colon cancer, the uh, inflammatory bowel disease, if you or a personal history of cancer, if you are average risk, just an average Joe or Jane out there wanting to lower your risk of dying of the second deadliest cancer for non-smokers, then age 50 to 75, Either the uh, the immunochemical testing every two years, that's where you test a sample of your stool in the home, you mail it in, uh, they tell you whether or not they see uh, tumor, uh, uh, cancer DNA, or uh, signs of blood in your stool. You get a colonoscopy every 10 years, or the third option, which we don't think will happen, you get a flexible sigmoidoscopy every 10 years, plus you get the uh, stool test every two years anyway. So we are recommending the tool, the stool test every two years, the colonoscopy every 10. My personal preference is the colonoscopy, but as you get older, that gets tougher, and you may want to switch over to the stool test every two years. Talk to your health care provider. should not be done in average-risk adults older than age 75 or adults with a life expectancy of less than 10 years, says the American College of Physicians. Now, the life expectancy of less than 10 years, if I could figure that out, I would agree with it. That's really hard. I mean, mm-hmm. there right now, a lot of the medical literature is, what do you say to someone whom you think has a life expectancy less than 10 years? You say, somebody says, uh, gee, is it time to get my colon test? Well, well no. <laughs> Not, no. You know, it's, yeah, it's a, what do you say? I mean, how do you say that? You know, well, if you hadn't messed up your... Uh, heart, then maybe we would do it. But well, but that's why you get the big bucks. Yeah, I know. You're not worth doing it. I, I mean, it it's really is difficult. Now, you don't want to get a colonoscopy to look for a colon cancer if you are dying of emphysema. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. But 10 years, if I can predict who's going to die in 10 years, that that's tricky. That, that for me is very difficult. But that's what they say. That's our sponsor, the American College of Physicians Colon Cancer Prevention Recommendations. Okay, we are now talking about safe cigarettes. Safe cigarettes. Safe cigarettes. No such thing. No, uh, not really. even the, not even the little candy ones they used to give kids. Nope, uh, they're they're they really aren't. Two studies presented at the American Heart Association meeting in uh, on November 11th. One study, and this is very quickly. I'll just tell you, people who vape have higher levels of the unhealthy cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, compared with non-smokers. And the levels of healthy cholesterol were lower among people who use both traditional and e-cigarettes. So e-cigarettes will raise your bad cholesterol, lower your good cholesterol. Uh, Regular cigarettes lower your good cholesterol. I think the big difference between the two, I think most likely, is that the regular cigarettes, a lot of people uh, are thin. They they lose weight on them, whereas e-cigarettes, not so much. But the the second study is the one I want to focus on. Okay. Rick is ready to jump in at any No, no, time. I just I think it's an interesting thing that, you know, to get off of cigarettes, they had to make the vaping more pleasurable from a taste standpoint, right? So they had to make it sweeter, had to make it, you know, but that in itself kind of leads to more overeating. Yeah. It's funny. They, you know, that, that was, there was one thing about cigarettes. Now, they're, just let me, you know, I did, sure. we talked about it last time I quit you know, a long time ago, and I quit for a reason. They're bad for you. You shouldn't do it. But the facts of the matter are, the minute I gave up smoking, I started gaining weight. I, at that point, I got my taste buds back, and I could not stay away from good tasting food. As to where, you know, the vaping doesn't do that to you. The vaping does not, like, stun your taste buds. I mean, if, if anything, it just, you know. So, anyway, I, I think it's interesting. that it's, I think vaping will actually be harder to deal with. Uh, could be. Well, this was uh, came from Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Now, this is not a huge study. But, but I want you to hear this. I, it was, uh, it, it, again, they present this at meetings rather than publish it in a journal because they don't have enough patience to put it in a journal. Ten non-smokers, ten tobacco smokers, ten e-cigarette smokers, 30 people. Everybody younger than age 40. So they consider 30 what we would call normal-hearted people. Ten of them don't smoke, ten of them e-cigarettes, ten of them uh, regular cigarettes. 
they had them exercise, and they can watch. They can use a camera and watch the blood flow through your heart during exercise. When you exercise, your heart beats faster, so it needs more blood. And we can put you on the camera, and we can see that heart flush with blood as you exercise as it gets more blood. Among the tobacco smokers, it doesn't flush quite as brightly. Nicotine in the tobacco blocks the blood vessels from dilating and letting more blood flow into your heart. Well, among the e-cigarette smokers, there was no flush at all. When they exercised, their heart did not get any more blood than it got at rest. That's bad. That's real bad. That is. Now, 10, 10 people, not a conclusive thing. Now, and you ask yourself, well, you know, are they at higher risk for a heart attack? Well, we don't know. I mean, we're, we're talking most of the e-cigarette smokers are young people. And so we don't have that data. It's going to take us probably 10 years or so to figure out if the heart attack rates are higher. But there's something about the e-cigarettes, and it makes sense there's something about the e-cigarettes that just stops the heart from getting more blood flow. One of the things you can do with an e-cigarette is you can load that sucker up with nicotine. And that's how you get people hooked on e-cigarettes. So it is very important for the makers of e-cigarettes to use a lot of nicotine because that's how you're going to get your people coming back and back and back. Nicotine clamps down on the blood vessels and keeps them from dilating. So it is quite possible an e-cigarette, which generally contains more nicotine than a regular cigarette, could have a bad effect on blood flow. And if it's doing it in the heart, it's probably doing it all over the body. Right. The brain, the kidneys, the gut. Yeah. Ten people. Not trying to, to, I'm not trying to make an overwhelming statement. I think the point is, you know, they're marketed as a safer cigarette. And no one ever proved they were safer. You think, well, it doesn't have tar. Uh, you don't really set fire to it. You just heat it up. And so there, and, and the, the, it doesn't, you know, you don't, maybe young people don't cough as much. So maybe they're okay. This is what they, the, the conclusion of this. They're about one in four cardiovascular deaths in the U.S. are caused by smoking. That's about 210,000, whereas lung cancer kills 140,000. So if even if e-cigarettes did nothing to cause lung cancer, they have no effects at all on lung cancer, they, they do not cause lung cancer, we're still looking at the possibility there could be thousands of deaths due to e-cigarettes. Ten people, not saying it's conclusive, but I'm saying you cannot say right now you cannot prove that they are a safer cigarette. We're going to have to use them for 10 or 15 years and see what happens. And that and maybe 20 or 25. Right, and that's scary. I, I just, I hate, you know, my mother told me don't put anything in your mouth unless you know where it's been. And e-cigarettes are the absolute epitome of we don't know where it's been. And it's our younger people that are taking up the habit. Right. Which is even worse. And it'll be interesting to see if it it's actually it turns out that it's probably safer to put an ice cream cone in your mouth than to, you know, vape. <laughs> I like it. I mean, it's funny. I, I just think, you know, because, you know. It's, well, we're back to the snow cones. We're back to the snow cones and ice yep. cream. and Especially if you get a thermogram. Like, well, but you're not supposed to. That's the thing. No, but the only way to screen for breast cancer is mammography. Unless you happen to be in a theme park and there aren't any mammograms around. That would be weird. There, there would not be a fast pass for that particular. No attraction. mammograms in the theme park. I know. And then you got all you got. Oh, well, I bet they happen. Thermography. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. A theme park with mammograms. This is anyway. But that's the only theme park that would protect you from breast cancer. You know. I mean, the, the well, you jumped two parks, segments back in time. <laughs> yeah, you need to get back into this fractional this portion. One. We were talking about safe cigarettes. We were talking about safe cigarettes. And the day we recorded this, which is November thirteenth. A 17-year-old boy, they announced this, uh, actually, they just put this in the news. This will be a, a week before the show airs. The first person to receive a double lung transplant as a result of e-cigarette use. Oh, the safer cigarettes. The safer cigarettes. Now, the obviously, we've got uh, 2,000 people hospitalized with safe cigarette injury. 39 people died from safe cigarettes. And this guy got a double lung transplant. He, um, he faced imminent death. He had been, uh, he he did the, the surgery was done October 15th. He had been in the hospital for over a month, actually three different hospitals. They felt that he was not going to make it with his lungs. His lungs simply wouldn't recover from the injuries from the safe cigarettes. Wow. So, um, 
And we keep doing this. That's the frustrating thing. We think, oh, this looks like it would be safer. Uh, I see the same thing, frankly, with uh, uh, THC marijuana use. Um, And I I know I preach a lot, but I'll just tell you, we don't know. We just simply don't know. And it is is frightening to me to see these experiments carried out uh, in mass on on people without any kind of science behind them. Right now, uh, we've said repeatedly, uh, scientists, medical scientists are not allowed to conduct experiments with marijuana except in very, very limited amounts. It's a Schedule One drug. That and LSD are the two Schedule One drugs strictly controlled, and so it's very hard to do marijuana research. Meanwhile, of course, people are smoking it on the street, but you cannot do scientific research except to see how many of those people are dying. Uh, and unfortunately, we will take us years to figure this out. And I don't know how safe these things are. Certainly, the e-cigarettes uh, have literally gone down in flames. Um, I, I don't know if they'll survive or not, um, but uh, I will not mourn their passing if they don't survive. <clears throat> Next up, this was from October 2018. We put it on the show, but I wanted to bring it back just to remind you, it's going to get cold out there. It's already cold out there. It was like 15 or something or 20 or something. I mean, it's gotten really cold here in Kentucky. Well, in Sweden, published October 24, 2018, in the journal, uh, AMA Journal of Cardiology, uh, they looked at people admitted to coronary care units, and they got data from the nearest weather station on that day. This was in Sweden, all across the uh, country of Sweden. They got weather data on the day these people were admitted with a heart attack. And they said, what weather is correlated with the greatest emission for heart attacks? In general, when you... Kind of, you did your mathematical adjustments. The incidence of having a heart attack rose as the temperature dropped, as the air pressure dropped. A low pressure, apparently, uh, more people went to the ICU with heart attacks on a low pressure day than a high pressure day. Less rainfall, which kind of surprised me, but higher wind velocity. In the south part of Sweden, snowfall didn't make any difference. In the north part, it did. I don't know why. They said, well, the north people, they're used to cold weather and low pressure, but snow meant a lot to them, southern people not. I think that was... Um, it and, could just be fatigued from all the snow. Yeah, it could be. I think both places they'd have to shovel it, so you know that classic idea of a heart attack while shoveling <clears throat> snow, that's not so. But here's the page two. Weather-related anxiety is another possibility. We feel better when it's warm and sunny. We feel more emotionally stressed when it's cold and windy, and we know emotional factors can trigger heart attacks. So I started thinking about weather-related anxiety. And so I turned to the most anxious, most hyper guy I know, Rick Phillips. Not, not a chance. Yeah. And I say, do you have weather-related anxiety? Absolutely not. You know, Shelly and I were talking. It may be then that when winter comes, you know, if we put a bunch of lights up, colored lights everywhere, and we go shopping and we play music, Maybe the whole thing is about weather-related anxiety. Our job is to get ourselves to January without having a heart attack. The, but the problem is, is, isn't November, that's what, well, this recent snap in Kentucky is really weird, but usually it's January, February, and then, you know, maybe that first week in March that's really the, the, the depressing ones, right? Because right. there's nothing to, you know, you're, you're, I mean, summer can't come fast enough. Yeah, I think, I think we ought to swap Valentine's Day and Christmas. Let's put up a bunch of lights in February when everything's mud and we really need something cheerful. Because I have weather-related anxiety in February. I am tired of winter. It's like Christmas comes too early. I know it's the winter solstice. Yeah, but, but we're still. tired. We're tired of winter in November. Good point. I mean, let's be honest. We're tired of it. So, Tony, do you have anxiety? Well, I thought about that. Think about that. No, not the way. I, the way when you asked me that question, the first thing that went through my mind was, do I get upset, nervous? Do I do I have an emotional response when it rains? And I don't even carry an umbrella. I mean, I've noticed that. I mean, well, the thing is, is I just don't let the weather bother me because I have absolutely no control over it. I can't do anything to change the weather as much as I wished I could. But you know, I mean, so why on earth do I, I like get to play emotional? in the snow? Or I used to like to play in the snow, but now when it snows, but then, I got to get you up. turn five. I got to get up half an hour earlier. I got to you know plow out the driveway. I got to put the salt down so nobody falls down. Uh, get some extra. F- I mean, it, it's a lot of work when I, I, it snows. And on for eighteen or nineteen years now on the radio, we've been talking about 
how people get heart attacks, shovel in their driveway. They fall. Their elderly people fall and break their hip. I mean, snow is. I mean, I, there's no way around it. People are not going to like the way I think about snow. But in Kentucky, snow equals death. Wow. It is. I mean, it is dangerous in Kentucky. Too many elderly people. Again, you know what happens. An elderly person falls and breaks their hip. What kind of prognosis do they have? That's, that's that 10-year talk you're having with Yeah, them. that's it. You forget the colon cancer screening. You're done. Yeah. I mean, so, and then, and, you know, how many times have we had heart heart attacks and from from shoveling snow? And then and then there's the whole car thing where we, we don't get enough snow to really be good at driving in the snow, but we still get enough to where driving in the snow is dangerous. So, I, I don't know. To me... I want to spend my retirement year someplace where I can wear shorts and flip-flops and not have to worry about snow and anxiety. Yeah, you try that, and then the the beach is going to... Can we record this from somewhere warm? Right. right? We're still going to be doing this in 20 years, right? <laughs> well, we're not going to keep doing it now, right? I tell you what, it is going to end today, right? Yes, get us <laughs> off the air. Special thanks to our Morehead State Public Radio producer, Shamari Mosley, and to Eric Bilbrey, who wrote our Health Matters theme song, and to you, our loyal radio fans. Remember to show your support for Health Matters by visiting our digital empire. To listen to the show, go to wmky.org, or visit us on Facebook. Just do a search for HM Radio Show. For our radio crew and the supportive folks at the Northeast A-Hang, thanks for listening to our show. And remember these important facts about Health Matters and aspirin from the Mayo Clinic. Daily Health Matters therapy can be a life-saving option. But it's not for everyone. Get the facts before considering a daily radio show. If you've had a heart attack or stroke, your doctor will likely recommend Daily Health Matters unless you have a serious allergy or history of bleeding. If you have a high risk of having a first heart attack, your doctor will likely recommend Health Matters after weighing the risks and benefits. You shouldn't start Daily Health Matters therapy on your own. However, while hearing an occasional Health Matters or two is safe for most adults with headaches, body aches, or fever, daily listening to Health Matters can have serious side effects, including internal bleeding. The Food and Drug Administration doesn't recommend Health Matters therapy for the prevention of heart attacks in people who haven't already had a heart attack, stroke, or another cardiovascular condition. Guidelines are varied between organizations, but they're evolving as more research is done. The benefits of daily Health Matters therapy don't outweigh the risk of bleeding in people with low risk of heart attacks. The higher your risk of heart attack, the more likely it is that the benefits of daily Health Matters outweigh the risk of bleeding. The bottom line is that before listening to a daily Health Matters show, you should have a discussion with your doctor. Have that discussion and do not take this stuff lying down. Get out this week, make a healthy change in your life, and tune in next week for more exciting news from the world of medical research on Warhead State Public Radio. Support for Health Matters on MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. Additional information on the Northeast AHEC is available online at neahec.org.